Hey, friends and fam, it's John, and this is JMartCast, your destination for Monday morning insight about physical and financial health. What's going on? How are you? This will be out for November 20th. Uh, been a while since I released the podcast out. The last one that was out was on um, Halloween. It came out October 31st. I recorded it the night before, so didn't really get to say happy Halloween though. So happy Halloween, uh, about three weeks late. <laughs> Apologize for that. But um, October 31st is a special date actually for a couple reasons. In addition to it being Halloween, it's actually also the Bitcoin white paper day. So as I already mentioned, we talk about physical and financial health on this podcast. If we're talking financial health, I mostly focus in on Bitcoin because that seems like the only thing worth looking into to have good financial health from my perspective, other than obviously real estate to live in because you need somewhere to live. But um, if we're back to the Bitcoin white paper, so that's that was released on October 31st. That was the paper released by um, Satoshi Nakamoto, the person who is the pseudonym behind the creator of Bitcoin. No one actually knows who that is. They just picked a random name, uh, so Japanese name, but we don't know for sure if this person was actually Japanese because all his communications are in English. But this person released this Bitcoin white paper explaining what Bitcoin is and the function and purpose it's supposed it's meant to have uh, on October 31st of 2009. And then a few months later... 2010, on January 3rd of 2010, I believe, was when Bitcoin was started. The, the software was launched and it all began. Uh, I think I got the, the year off a little bit. I think it was 2008, October 31st of 2008 was when the white paper was released. And then 2009 was when Bitcoin launched. And, you know, the white paper was just this random PDF that was sent to a, um, I guess, a mailing list of people who are into um, cryptography. And then from that point on, it's been, what, I guess, 14 years. In that 14 years, through this one PDF, it's uh, spread wild and, you know, gotten the attentions of many people and also risen in value from, you know, zero to, what is that now? It's at uh, 36,000 last time I checked in US dollars. Let's take a quick look. Why don't we do a quick Bitcoin update? Bitcoin update, we're sitting on block height 817,571. Price of one Bitcoin is trading at 37,278 US dollars which means that one U.S. dollar will buy you 2,683 sats or satoshis. Sats are like the cents equivalent in Bitcoin world, right? If you have one dollar that subdivides into 100 cents, then one Bitcoin can divide into 100 million sats. It's very divisible, so don't worry if you can't buy one whole Bitcoin. You don't need to right away. You can uh, slowly work towards that if you ever get there it might be hard because there's only 21 million by the way while i'm on the topic i may as well mention that if you want to support the podcast you can do so by 
listening on a podcasting 2.0 app such as Fountain, Breeze, or Podverse. These are special podcast apps that have a Bitcoin wallet as part of the app, which lets you send sats to the podcast that you're listening to, if they have it enabled, of course. You can do it two ways. One of them is to send sats per minute listened to the podcast, or you can do one uh, lump sum with a message attached that's called a boostergram. So obviously no pressure if you don't want to do that, but if you'd like to support the podcast, then, then this is the best way. In addition to, of course, the usual like and subscribe and share with a friend. And if you don't have any uh, Bitcoin or sats, then don't worry. No problem. If you would like some, send me a message and I can send you a few sats to load up your Bitcoin podcast wallet with. And you can play around with it and see if you like it or not. Yes. Send me a message at uh, jmartfit at substack.com. You can email me there. You can also reach out on social media, I'm on um, Instagram, Twitter, at jmartfit, I'm on Facebook too, um, Noster I'm on, you'll see all the links in the description. But yeah, so October 31st, Halloween, it's also Bitcoin White Paper Day, and the other reason why it's a special day is that it's also the Protestant Reformation Day, and so that day is actually important because that is the day that Martin Luther went to like the Holy Roman Empire and they had, they had some church there and he nailed on the door of the church his, it's called 95 Theses and it's just basically a document with a bunch of grievances basically that Martin Luther had about how the Catholic Church was running things and how, you know, they he disagreed with the ways that the church was going forward. It was too powerful, basically. And this kind of started off the Protestant Reformation. And it was basically the start of separating um, church and state. Right at that point, the Holy Roman Empire was basically controlling everything. And so there was not much of a difference between, you know, what the government was and what the church was. And that was just too much power concentrated altogether. And this was the start of that separation of church and state, which I think people in general are happy with that uh, development as it made the lives of just regular people better moving forward to not have an overbearing, overpowerful uh, state that was also the church. And now the cool thing is that now both that Reformation Day and Bitcoin White Paper are on October 31st. And Reformation Day was the separation of church and state. Bitcoin White Paper Day is the launch or the start of the separation of money and state. This can't be understated how important it is because this is just the world we live in now where money is controlled by the state and it's constantly the supply of money is constantly inflated further and further to the point that whatever savings you have is constantly shrinking compared to the you know out, amount of money that's out there meaning that you're just slowly getting poorer even though you're not really doing anything to deserve that yeah you're just being stolen from without um, any control right and this is the reason why 
Bitcoiners advocate for the separation of money and state through opting out of the current financial system and opting in to using Bitcoin instead. All right, so there you go. Happy Halloween, happy White Paper Day, and happy Reformation Day. Hopefully we go on to separate money and state in the next decade or so. <laughs> we'll see. Fingers crossed. So let's talk a little bit health, a little bit of health before I go back to, or physical health before I go back to financial health. So it's obviously uh, fall season, going to be winter season soon. This is when colds and everything starts, right? Uh, getting respiratory illnesses. Um, so I've gotten already three respiratory illnesses <laughs> starting from September, right as my son uh, started going to kindergarten. He's gotten me three times, once per month, one in September, one in October, and now again in November. But I've smartened up and I've dealt with this third one now where I'm feeling much better. So the first time uh, I got sick in September, I was not really paying attention to it very, very well. And basically, I, you know, I got sick and, you know, the first day you kind of, you feel sick, but it's not that sick. So you don't really necessarily notice it unless you're really paying attention, right? So I think basically one or two days passed before I realized that I was sick. And normally what I do is I use these zinc lozenges to help get rid of the cold. I'll explain a little bit later, but you have to basically get on using the zinc lozenges as soon as possible, right from the first day where you feel sick. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. But what happened that first time in September, I didn't notice till it was late, so I didn't use the zinc lozenges at all. And then I got pretty sick, actually. Luckily, I recovered from that eventually. Uh, but but the funny thing is, only like a week after I recovered, I got another respiratory illness. This time, you know, I was prepared, almost though, because I did notice it right away. And right from the first day, I started taking my zinc lozenges. Unfortunately, I didn't realize I didn't have enough. And after the first day, I ran out. Second day, I woke up feeling a little bit better, but still not really 100%. I went online, ordered more zinc lozenges. Unfortunately, they didn't come till like two or three days later. And by that time, the illness had progressed and again, screwed up. Went through about two to three weeks until I fully cleared all the symptoms. And then now November comes around. This time, I'm very well prepared. I'm staying on top of it, like noticing if I'm sick or not. And I have my zinc lozenges, like I bought a bunch of them, so I have enough. So it was three days ago, I woke up with a sore throat right off the bat. I had like four or five zinc lozenges that I took that first day. Then the second day I woke up feeling a little bit better, but still I could tell that I'm sick. My throat was quite a bit sore did a bunch of zinc lozenges that day, I think three or four. And then the next morning I woke up, completely felt fine, no sore throat, no nothing. Still took a few, I think only two zinc lozenges that day. And then today I woke up feeling completely normal as well. Just took one zinc lozenge to be sure, but I think I'm over it. So why zinc lozenges is the obvious ne next question. And why is it that 
it doesn't work if you take it late or if you take it early, but then you skip a few days. What's going on there? So what does zinc do? Well, it's a, it's a mineral and it does a bunch of things. Like it, it'll be a, like a cofactor that binds to um, proteins and helps them work and stuff, but it can also inhibit certain proteins that it binds to. So it actually can bind to something called an RNA polymerase. So RNA polymerase is what a lot of respiratory viruses use to replicate their RNA so that they can make a bunch of copies of themselves after they've infected you to, you know, infect you further, to get you sick enough so then then you can start like coughing and sneezing and whatnot and releasing more copies of it to infect other people. So, you need, if you take zinc, enough zinc to inhibit this RNA polymerase, then... Uh, the virus is not going to be able to make copies, enough copies of itself so that your immune system can handle whatever amount of virus is inside your body, right? Once it replicates and makes so much of it that, uh, you know, it'll overwhelm your immune system so that it can't, you can't like get rid of it in just two to three days like I did this time. So that's exactly what happened the second time I got sick in October is, I had taken enough zinc to slow it down, but not so much that it could, it, it, um, you know, my immune system could finish off the job. There was still enough copies in there that it was able to replicate itself enough that, uh, you know, I had to go through like two to three weeks of illness. <laughs> but as long as, you know, you're on top of it, as soon as you feel anything, you start taking it and continue to take it for the first few days, and then should be good like I was this time. Uh, and the reason why it's in lozenge form is because, obviously, when you're infected by something, usually it goes in through you know, your nose or your mouth, and you get infected by the virus in kind of like your sinuses, right? Um, that's where you feel it in your throat, or you're, you, know, you get congested. So you need to deliver the zinc to that region where you're, you've been infected, right? So the lozenge is the best way. So I buy these uh, specific ones. Uh, the brand is called Life Extensions. And it's this really big freaking thing that, <laughs> uh, you know, stays in your mouth for quite a while, actually. Like you got to uh, let it melt in, in your mouth for like 20 minutes, sometimes up to a half hour it takes for it to like you know, slowly, um, for it to, I guess it melts, you know, or I guess not really melts, but dissolves. It slowly dissolves in your mouth. So you got to keep it in your mouth. You got to, you know, move it around, let it dissolve slowly. And then, um, you know, it'll uh, absorb to your sinuses where it's needed for the RNA, uh, for the zinc to find the RNA polymerase, bind it and stop it from replicating. And you, know, you got to do L large amounts. Like I said, the first day that I was doing it, I just continuously kept popping more lozenges, ended up, I think, totaling four or five for that day. Uh, so you, you gotta, you gotta do that. <laughs> just one or two is not going to be enough. So there you go. That's my trick for dealing with a cold during these seasons where, you know, we're more likely to be infected. 
First of all, you got to pay attention and notice right away when you're feeling some symptoms of illness. And then as soon as you feel that, you got to get your uh, zinc lozenges. The brand that I get that I recommend is Life Extensions, I believe they're called. And you can get that from iHerb. Yeah, go to iHerb.com or .ca, whatever the hell. Um, and they have them, the Life Extensions zinc lozenges. I get the uh, peppermint one. But they got citrus orange too. Maybe I'll try that next time. <laughs> Anyway, make sure you pop multiple of these lozenges throughout the day. Try to total four or five the first day. You can do a few less the following days, but then you got to follow that up for at least another one or two days. And that should pretty much stop the cold in its tracks. And, you know, you should be fine the rest of the way. Give it a try. Let me know how it works. All right, before moving on, I wanted to talk a little bit more about something else physical health related. So I live in Canada and we have this thing in Canada called medical assistance in dying, which basically, you know, if you, if you've got a terminal illness and there's nothing that can, you know, make you feel better or, you know, overcome this illness, then you can go to the doctor and you can say, doctor, please give me drugs to kill myself. Now, Originally, the way this was passed to be able to have something like this was it really had to be for people who are, you know, on death's bed, on death's door, maybe is the better phrase, I don't know. But essentially, like, yeah, they got no better option. They're really miserable. They're really suffering. It's, it's humane to do this for them. But of course, as, you know, these things start to happen, rules get bent, Right. And so there's this story that I want to share with you that is kind of crazy to even think about. But here's, here's the story. Um, if you just search Canadian mom's harrowing tale shows the real dangers of legal euthanasia, you'll find it. And it's basically a story of, about this 23-year-old kid who doesn't live with his mom, he lives with his aunt, he's got a bad relationship with his parents or whatever. Um, and he suffers from um, depression, probably multiple reasons. Um, from what I gather from the story, his parents are divorced, so that could be contributing to it. But the main reason from what it says in the story is because it's from diabetes that he has, which got worse this summer and caused... Uh, loss of sight in one of the eyes. So he's got, you know, diabetes that has gone uncontrolled. First of all, that's, I like, why is the diabetes uncontrolled? That should be under control. Then second of all, it's so under, out of control that he lost sight in one eye. And then now he's depressed. And now because of this, he couldn't find anything else to do to help him feel better and he went and applied for MAID, medical assistance in dying. And somehow, this doctor, I'll find his name because we should put this guy under fire. Okay, here it is. His name is Joshua Tepper. This so-called doctor who took the Hippocratic Oath of at first do no harm decided that it was okay to approve this 23-year-old kid who's got depression 
from diabetes. <laughs> uh, he he approved them for medical assistance in dying, and then I think the story is this kid's mom was snooping around on his computer or maybe Facebook and found out that this is going on, ended up calling that doctor and pretending to be someone who had the similar condition, who wanted to know more about what it would take to get approved. And then she realized that this was legit, this was actually going to happen. So then she kind of blew it up, went and found some other doctors who were quite surprised that this 23-year-old kid was approved for this and then basically brought the heat to this Joshua Tepper character. When once the heat was on, the guy was like, oh, never mind, I'm not going to do it anymore. But had there been no one watching, this guy would have for sure done it. And I don't know, like, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I'm definitely not for doctors approving 23-year-old kids who don't have their diabetes under control, who are depressed because of it, to then go take another drug to kill themselves. That is not okay in my books. Um, how do you guys feel about it? I'd love to get some opinions on what you think about medical assistance in dying. Like, who should it be approved for? Like, should people who don't have um, terminal illnesses ever be approved for medical assistance in dying? Because that's where kind of where we're headed. There, there's a bill that's going to be most likely passed, let's be honest, where they're going to open it up to people with uh, mental disorders and like anxiety and shit like that and depression. Like, so this kid will actually legally be approvable. So maybe just has to wait a few months and then go back and apply again. Like, I don't know, please write me back and let me know. Am I crazy for thinking that it's not okay for this kid to get medical assistance in dying? Um, let me know what your thoughts are about this. I'd like to, if anyone has any like well thought out opinions, if you'd like to send me an email, jmartfit at substack.com and let me know. And if I find it a good point of view and articulate, and I'd love to share it on the podcast. Um, yeah, that's just my biases. That's not okay. You know, when people imagine what this is for, they don't imagine 23-year-old kids with diabetes, right? They imagine some guy on his deathbed feeling a lot of pain. And, you know, that makes sense. Or maybe some burn victim that's, you know, got 90% or 95% of their skin all burned off and... You know, they're maybe so badly burned that they're constantly getting infected because they got no, you know, barrier, right, for things getting inside. So they're going to die pretty soon. So that makes sense. Okay. But uh, this just doesn't make sense to me whatsoever. All right. And with that fun topic out of the way, let's talk about another not so fun topic. <laughs> Well, so what I wanted to mention was my friend, who's a great friend, I love him very much, shared this podcast with me about what happened in Armenia recently. Okay, well, not Ar Armenia exactly, it's this region called Artsakh, it's this autonomous region inside the borders of Azerbaijan, and basically the Azeris had... Um, 
blockaded the region for about nine months. And then after that, once everyone was starving and, you know, very weak, they couldn't defend the borders anymore. They just took it over. And now um, the 100,000 plus people that used to live there um, knew that if they were to stay, they would be most likely killed. So they all escaped into the inside of the borders of Armenia itself instead of that specific region. Um, and so this is a conflict that's been brewing for decades. And, you know, my friend heard this podcast about what happened and he shared me, shared the episode with me and I started listening to it. And within seven minutes of hearing it, uh, I already knew this was like a paid for by the Azeris propaganda piece to make their actions seem better than what they actually are. Like, it's very obvious because as an Armenian, you know the details of the conflict very well. So if someone's bullshitting, you can you can tell right away. And, you know, the way I knew was this person. Um, so it's like the person who does the podcast, the host, they had another journalist, I guess, if you can call him that, just the propagandist on as a guest who was talking about it. And he, the way he was talking about it, he was framing it as like this back and forth affair between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And like, they both hate each other and they do like nasty things back and forth to each other. And it's 100% not like that at all. And he even mentioned like this fake massacre. That's like, it's such an easy thing to debunk. Like it, even Google will, if you just type in the name of it, will let you know that it, it's not a real massacre and it's complete bullshit. And the guy was talking about it like it's real. And, you know, it's it's just so hard to listen. It was so hard, like, after seven minutes, I was like, I'm, there's no point in me listening to it anymore. This is complete bullshit. This is propaganda. And, you know, I... As, and the Azeri government, which is um, like this very corrupt government, right? It's run by a dictator whose family has like been in control of the country for decades and decades. They get a lot of money because their country is rich with oil. None of the oil companies are actually Azeri themselves, you know, or whatever international companies that just, you know, give kickback money to, to the um, you know, dictator for, you know, just letting them operate smoothly. And this guy has been caught many times, like laundering his money through all these, uh, you know, shady banks in, in London, and then using that laundered money to gain influence by paying um, reporters for these fake stories. That's a proven fact. Um, and so this is one example of that. Um, I don't even know what an say the name of the podcast because it's a fucking garbage podcast that shouldn't no one should listen to I'll, I'll just say it's a podcast done by the new york times which is a shitty journal shitty newspaper whatever it is it's 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 garbage too it's just pretty much every story you read in the new york times is some sort of narrative that's been specifically crafted and framed to make you think a certain thing rather than actually provide you with the news to help you make your own opinion. Um, and I try to tell my friend this. Unfortunately, he's much more of a mainstream kind of person. You know, every, 
you know, I, I tried to tell him this is 100% a paid-for propaganda piece, and he just was not having it. He's like, you know, they, they just missed the mark. It's too bad that happened, but I don't think New York Times is a propaganda, like, <laughs> is pushing propaganda. It's like, all right, well, you know, you think what you want to think, um, but I know what I'm talking about. This is 100% garbage paid-for propaganda to make Azerbaijan look not so bad for having done the things that it did, such as starving up this region for nine months by not letting any uh, food or supplies come in, not letting um, um, natural gas to be delivered so that people can heat up their homes, not letting medical supplies to come in. They did that for nine months, and then uh, and then in two days they just like took over with, with military forces and forced 100,000-plus people to relocate. Um, and the funny thing is, uh, at the very beginning of the podcast, they mentioned that they had this sto- th- this podcast ready to be released, and then what happened was the Israeli-Palestine conflict happened, and then they didn't release it. <laughs> Which just show, goes to show the uh, integrity. It's like, why is the fact that there's a similar conflict happening in a slightly different part of the world affect the fact that you don't want to release what's going on here. Just anyway, moving on from that. But I guess the point I want to make is, you know, with the whole Israel-Palestine thing happening right now, you know, people are getting a lot of news about, you know, Israel's really bad or whatever. What the Palestinians did was really bad and like, Everyone's horrible, everyone's bombing hospitals and killing children, blah, blah, blah. And just just keep in mind that a lot of these stories and narratives, like I said, are being crafted to make you think a certain way. And there might be like kernels of truth in what everyone's saying, but mostly it's all propaganda, it's all bullshit, it's all there just to make you, you know, either feel um, anger or fear. Usually those are the two kind of emotions that, People try to tap into to manipulate you. So don't get, don't feel scared. Don't feel angry. Um, don't let mainstream media bullshit you and tell you lies. All right, moving on to the last topic. Speaking of mainstream media bullshitting and telling lies, the most important financial lie that's being perpetuated by mainstream or legacy media is that inflation is just a normal part of um you know life and that you know things we just have to have money that constantly inflates that's normal uh, well it's it's not normal uh, you know people used to live under the gold standard and um gold is not like paper money you can't make <laughs> uh, you know more of it just randomly just out of thin air like paper right if you want some more you got to go mine it you got to get it out of the ground you got to put some work hard work into it to get more or if you don't want to do that then you got to provide a good or a service and earn it right so i'm sure you've noticed currently we're going through a bit of a inflationary period as everything's getting more expensive from housing to just even day-to-day you know groceries yeah and a lot of people are talking about uh weimar germany right the that's the German state that uh, was formed after the end of World War One. that had to pay all its debts, you know, to the winning countries and it couldn't do so. So it ended up just printing an insane amount of its money to pay it back. And of course, that led to hyperinflation. 
and you know which led to the country really suffering to the point that they end up you know getting Hitler in power and then you know the rest World War II so here's a little story that I read that's related to that um, I read it on Twitter I thought it was pretty interesting so I wanted to share it on the podcast this is from an account by the name of Tour de Meester, T-U-U-R-D-E-M-E-E-S-T-E-R. Good account to follow if you want to know stuff about Bitcoin. Here's the story. Tour writes, 100 years ago today, Weimar Germany abolished the paper mark, marking the end of Germany's hyperinflation. In that same year, Joseph Wild, a master goldsmith from Nuremberg, started minting his own coins to advocate for a return to a gold standard with private gold coins. His coins were popular among the public, but the German government hated this form of private competition with its own money, which it used to levy a continuous inflation tax. Gold broker Kunken notes... His coins were a matter of conviction. He didn't make any money off them. On the contrary, coin dealer Carl Friedrich Gerbert had to provide financial aid to Joseph Wilde time and again, mostly by buying his gold coins off him whenever he was in financial distress. Sometime in the year of 1928, Joseph Wilde must have started to copy old gold coins from the German Empire. Based on this, in 1929, the goldsmith from Nuremberg was convicted for forgery and sentenced to several years in prison, even though his own coins actually had much more value than all the money given out by the German government. Nonetheless, at age 57, he had to go to prison and he would never leave there. Joseph Wilde, who had produced money of more stable value than the German state, passed away on March 31st, 1932. So yeah, that's the bit I wanted to read. This post also has a bunch of pictures from the time. It's just wild to see the stacks and stacks of paper money. There's also another picture of some guy who's got a shop, it looks like. Maybe he's working on shoes or whatnot. He's got a sign in German. The translation says that it says, sale and repairs in exchange for food. Like, people knew, like, I don't want money. Like, that money's garbage. It's just toilet paper. I don't need that. I'll give me food and I'll do stuff for you because I know food I can eat. So, yeah, there you go. This guy living in this terrible situation thought he'd come up with a solution. But, you know, he copied old German coins and had to go go to jail for that. But lucky for us, we don't have to go through that same problem because we have bitcoin which is um censorship resistant scarce independently verifiable money and it has no centralized issuer and that's the key thing that's right you know satoshi nakamoto he's not really the issuer but he did come up with the idea of it and but he was you know smart enough to keep himself anonymous or pseudonymous so that no one can actually find him And so all that means is that Bitcoin cannot be shut down by the government as easy as this guy was shut down for copying some coins. Yep. And as more and more people adopt Bitcoin, it'll go a long way in 
curbing and stopping this unsustainable government spending, both here in Canada and across the globe. And it'll help regular people, working families, protect their savings from the currency debasement that will ultimately always lead to like this hyperinflationary stage that Weimar Germany had to go through. Okay, with that said, I think we've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. I appreciate you all. Please leave a comment or send me a message at jmartfit at substack.com. You can also reach me through social media. I'm on Noster. All the links are in the description. Love you all. Have a good week. Stay active and be grateful. Jmart out.